Hello and welcome to QPod, QIC's Investor Insights podcast series. I'm Craig Valenzuela, Managing Director for Global Business Development, and each week we invite our listeners to take 10 and get the latest economic insights from our in-house economics team. And good morning to our Chief Economist, Dr. Matthew Peter. Matthew, I hope you're enjoying all your freedom up in sunny Queensland. Well, uh, Craig, it is sunny and we are able to move around, but of course it's a a bit of cold comfort, as you would well know. We're not able to uh, visit our friends and family interstate, so you know we're hoping that you're able to stop the lockdown quickly. Thank you. Sydney's lockdown has been extended, as you mentioned there, Matthew, for another two weeks to the 30th of July, and overnight we've seen Daniel Andrews also call a lockdown for Melbourne, its fifth lockdown. In last week's QPod, we forecast lockdowns would continue to be a feature of our major Australian cities, Matthew, until we reach a level of herd immunity in our vaccination program. So what impact will the extended Sydney lockdown have on our economy? Well, Craig, we estimate that the Sydney lockdown is costing just under a billion dollars a week, around about $800 million a week. If the Sydney lockdown continues into mid-August, which we think it will, that'll be a duration of just under two months, around seven weeks. That'll mean the cost of the Sydney lockdown will be about $5.4 billion. Uh, If Melbourne's lockdown lasts for two weeks rather than the five days, this will add a further loss of $1.1 billion, Craig. So combine those two together, Sydney and Melbourne lockdowns of that length of duration, then together they'll knock off a full percentage point from the third quarter GDP quarterly growth rate. And what that'll do, Craig, is stunt the recovery. It'll lower the expected quarterly growth rate to just 0.1%. And Matthew, with this sort of bleak outlook for the GDP for Australia, will the federal government's upgrade to their income and business assistance measures help the economy? Yes, Craig, they will help. $600 a week payments to workers, which is in the new package just announced, is just shy, for example, of the JobKeeper payments, which were $750 a week at its maximum. And the main benefit of these payments is actually to speed up the rebound that we'll get once the economy reopens and households are out and about and spending again. The business assistance payments, which are also part of the package, will also help keep uh, small businesses afloat. However, uh, the real risk that we are facing is that are we entering a phase of rolling lockdowns if it proves, as we suspect it may, impossible to avoid sporadic outbreaks of the Delta variant? What we might see is short, sharp lockdowns in the nature of what we're seeing in Melbourne at the moment become a feature of our economic landscape until, as you say, Craig, we vaccinate around about 70% of our population, hopefully by year end. Yeah, a bit to go, Matthew. Yesterday's labour market data showed no signs of let up uh, in the employment growth over June, with the unemployment rate falling below 5%, its lowest level in a decade. However, the data preceded the Sydney outbreak. Forward-looking indicators taken during the start of the Sydney outbreak show business sentiment slid, but consumer sentiment held up. How do you think Matthew the RBA will interpret the current raft of data and those trading conditions? Well, for the time being, Craig, I think the uncertainty created by the Delta variant will trump the strong labour market data in RBA's thinking. The consumer sentiment data you referred to will drop off again in the light of the extension of the Sydney lockdown and, of course, the new Melbourne lockdown. Now, employment may well hold up, depending on whether businesses keep workers on, as happened in Melbourne during their last lockdown, for example, and those assistance packages uh, that have been announced will help there. I think the RBA will be tested, though, over the remainder of the year if 
on the one hand, the unemployment rate keeps falling, and especially if wage growth starts to rise once lockdowns pass. But on the other hand, if you're also faced with uncertainty around COVID, and we haven't yet achieved that 70% vaccination rate, which probably won't be until year end. I think if they're confronted with those competing pressures, the RBA will err on the dovish side and keep rates low until they think the economy is on a longer term sustainable footing, which means being at a point where vaccination rates are at a level where we are comfortable to live with COVID. You're listening to Craig Balanswala and QIC's Take 10 podcast, where our Chief Economist, Dr Matthew Peter, is taking us through the current economic foresight shaping your investment outlook. Australia has for many years now enjoyed the economic benefit of the roaring Chinese economy, Matthew. Whilst there has been geopolitical tension of late, their demand for our iron ore and coal hasn't abated. So will the Chinese economy be the potential swing factor for the RBA? Well, China remains critical for the Australian recovery from COVID over the coming 12 months. And the data yesterday on China's economic performance over the June quarter is very encouraging. We did see the annual rate of growth drop a little bit to a more moderate uh, 7.9%. That's largely due to base effects though, Craig. More importantly, the momentum in the economy has picked up over the quarter and more timely monthly data is indicating that that positive momentum is continuing into the current quarter. This boost, as you referred to, is generating strong demand for iron ore, coal prices and iron ore prices are rising as are our exports. And that's certainly providing a major stopgap to the impact of lockdowns and slowdowns and the slow rollout of the vaccine. Let's hope the Delta variant doesn't hit those minds, Matthew. So China's got strong data. The RBNZ has signalled it's got rate rides likely to come and the US inflation is hitting a 30-year high. So how do you see monetary policy panning out across the globe? Yeah, it's it's a pretty interesting period of time. If you go back a few weeks, it looked as though central banks around the globe were preparing for exit strategies from the current regime of zero cash rates and these large QE programs. You know, you look back, the US inflation data was surging, the, the vaccine rollout in North America and Europe was gaining speed. Governments were easing COVID restrictions and gradually reopening their economies. And the Fed had abruptly, if you remember, brought forward its guidance on the timing of liftoff from the zero on the Fed funds rate. This week, as you mentioned, we've received further data uh, on US inflation with that very large headline and core number coming through. And as you said, to the RBNZ, it's also looking to raise rates. But if you look elsewhere, and let's look beyond the West for a moment, the People's Bank of China eased policy this week by lowering their reserve requirement ratio to encourage increased lending to businesses and households by the banking sector, as the Chinese government there is seeking to maintain economic momentum while shifting the driver of growth away from the government to private sector spending. In Europe, The ECB, which, as you know, is the bastion of inflation targeting, made an historic change to their policy mandate. So instead of targeting inflation just below 2%, they lifted that target to 2%. But more importantly, they are allowing for overshoot of that target. And in Europe, as we're seeing many countries having to tighten COVID restrictions in the face of the spread of the Delta variant, we also expect to see a, a slowdown in the recovery of that region, which with the ECB with a different mandate uh, allows them to pursue a a softer monetary policy. Meanwhile, in the US, we've just seen the Fed President Jerome Powell give quite a dovish testimony to the Congress indicating the Fed is in no hurry to raise Fed funds rate or drastically alter its QE program. 
Yeah, very interesting, Matthew, given that inflation spike. You're listening to Craig Valenzuela and QIC's Take 10 podcast, where our Chief Economist, Dr. Matthew Peter, is taking us through the current economic foresights shaping your investment outlook. Matthew, you mentioned at the start that it's a very interesting period right now. So how should institutional investors interpret this shifting landscape in global monetary policy? Well, Craig, it's clear that over March to May, markets had run ahead of themselves with their inflation outlook and the fear that central banks were falling behind the curve. These fears have now abated, notwithstanding the spike in inflation driven by things like rising global energy and food prices and supply chain bottlenecks. The fears have abated because those factors are largely now assumed to be temporary. The growth outlook has been tempered by the impact of the spread of the Delta variant and the realisation that the American jobs and family plans of uh, the Biden administration will be nowhere near as stimulative to the US economy as was the American rescue plan, which Biden implemented in the first half of the year. So with central banks in China and Europe and the US striking a more dovish stance and Australia struggling with the Delta variant and the slow vaccine rollout, the RBA, I think, will be very pleased that it didn't take the bait and bring forward its catch rate guidance and that it extended its QE program with an option to extend further beyond November. So, Craig, bottom line, low interest rates for longer. That's what we'll see. Matthew, I want to hold you a little bit more to account, though. What we've seen recently is a real run in the equity markets. And what we've described today is increased uncertainty in the markets, particularly given inflation and and other factors hitting particularly the Northern Hemisphere. So given those low interest rate environments to hear the stage, will we see potentially a divergence between the returns or the outcomes in the private markets in comparison to the public markets? Look, the lower interest rates environment is going to be good for both private and public markets. Basically, for all uh, risk assets, low interest rates are a good thing. But if we accompany low interest rates with rising inflation rates, then I can see a dichotomy emerging between private and public markets to the extent that typically, overall, private markets tend assets in private markets, particularly real estate and infrastructure, or infrastructure in particular, but also parts of real estate, tend to be better hedges against inflation than what you'd see on aggregate in public markets. So I can see a situation where you get a flip more towards public markets or those assets within public markets that are good inflation hedges away from assets that are less so in public markets. Thanks, Matthew. And in summary, the Delta variant is costing Australia's two largest states big time to the tune of $1.35 billion per week. And the signs of economic impact from Australia's lockdown are starting to be seen in the data, which will likely see the RBA retain unchanged its current expansive monetary policy. However, with US inflation starting to take off, yes, your secondhand Chrysler is now up 40% and significantly higher vaccination rates in the US and UK, allowing their economies to open. Will the Western central banks follow the early shift in tightening policy as flagged by the RBNZ. I'm Craig Valenzuela for QPod. Thank you for listening and have a super weekend.